0: From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project.
1: Venice, I was fortunate enough to see some of the wonders of the new world. I saw a single handbag behind a double pane of bulletproof glass being monitored by 18 silver-plated surveillance cameras.
2: Hanoi, Vietnam, October 19th, 2007. Sorry I've spent most of this week sleeping. I went to the hospital and was diagnosed with gastritis, gallstones, and a parasite. I'm leaving this morning for a weekend trip to an outer province, but when I return, I will write.
3: You just heard an excerpt of an email from a student traveling in Vietnam. Why on earth, having been hospitalized, would she travel on to the outer provinces? What pushes her to see more, even in a miserable state? Could she take anything in? And more generally, why do we travel at all? My name is Elizabeth Bradfield, and I'm fascinated by these questions, in part because I work in the travel industry. I'm a naturalist, and over the years I've worked in Alaska, Mexico, and the Gulf of Maine. Sometimes I travel with people for a week at a time on a boat, exploring with them. Sometimes I'm the voice on the microphone for a three-hour whale watch. The thing is, because my work takes me on the road, it's hard for me to find time to get out and travel extensively for myself. You might say I have travel envy, and I wonder, what's it like for the people I'm explaining stuff to? How do they connect to what they experience? In a three-hour tour, can they really have a meaningful connection to place? Is, whoa, whales, all there is? Or can the connection last longer than the trip back to the dock and ripple through their lives? As a naturalist, I want to know, but I'm also a poet, and so I often look for answers and for questions in poems. Questions of Travel by Elizabeth Bishop asked some great ones. Should we have stayed at home and thought of here? Where should we be today? Is it right to be watching strangers in a play in this strangest of theaters? On today's show, we hear from travelers trying to find answers. We ask, what happens to us when we travel? Are the answers different for students, poets, scientists, or citizens of the world? What do we see? How do we get beyond the glossy brochure that got us to get on the road in the first place? Is travel harmful? Does it exploit in some way? What do we bring home with us? What real thing, aside from shot glasses, bar stories, parasites, gigabytes of photos? You're listening to the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay tuned for more questions of travel. From KZSU in Stanford, California, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each week, we bring you an hour of stories that explore a single question or theme, stories of every kind, documentaries, fiction, memoir, academic sleuthing, even ballads, all written and produced by Stanford students, fellows, and faculty. This week, we investigate questions of travel. In the first leg of our journey, we hear from three Stegner fellows in poetry who have lived and taught abroad. They share poems written from afar and wrestle with how to see a foreign world without making yourself its center. The next leg takes us to Stanford professor and ecologist Peter Vitusik, who talks about bringing students to Hawaii and makes a compelling argument that tourism, the cheesy stuff, isn't so bad. Then, Stanford student Samantha Way guides us into the chaos of Malaysia's Pasar Pagi, and then returns to California with new eyes. The last stop we make is with Stanford professor Nicole Ardoin, who shares stories about her research on sense of place and her work as an educator in the Galapagos and the Grand Canyon. Throughout, we'll hear actual letters from travelers around the globe. So stay with us as we explore questions of place, connection, and travel.
4: in your
5: Melbourne, Australia, April 9, 2000 Dear Grandpa Dan, Where to begin? This trip has transformed my outlook, and probably my inlook as well, if that makes any sense. I noticed a major difference in my attitude today, landing in Melbourne, from when I arrived in Sydney a month ago. I guess I wasn't as scared. Not having a place to sleep didn't bother me as much. Finding my way through the foreign grid of skyscrapers wasn't so overwhelming, and I didn't feel vulnerable to the passerby. Maybe it's just my mood today, but I feel as if I could go anywhere in the world and make it all right. I'm the youngest of the backpackers I've met yet, being 16, but I try not to make a big deal of my age and just carry on with conversation. I will be home before I know it and oh how I will miss this life. I can't imagine going back to the same humdrum days at high school. What am I to do? It's going to be even worse next year because most of my friends are graduating and heading off to uni. I'll have to start planning for my next trip, I guess. Europe, India, Japan, there's an entire world to be seen.
3: Away from home, we experience ourselves differently. Maybe we pay closer attention. We take photos, maybe we keep a travel journal. But what if you're a writer to begin with? How does travel affect what you put on the page and publish? We took some time to talk to Stegner fellows in poetry, John Evans, Laura McKee, and Joshua Rifkin, all of whom have lived overseas, either as teachers, Peace Corps workers, or wanderers. They talked about the dreaded tourist poem.
0: My name is John Evans. I was a Peace Corps volunteer after college um, in Bangladesh. I went to India on a traveling fellowship a couple summers later and I lived in Romania for a year and a little bit over a year.
6: And uh, my name is Laura McKee and I moved um, to France after graduate school, lived in France for a year and then I lived in the Netherlands for a year. Most recently I've traveled um, in South Korea and Singapore.
7: Uh, My name is Joshua Rivkin and uh, I lived for a year after college in South America in Santiago, Chile, and I was teaching English there and learning Spanish and writing. Um, And I've also spent some time traveling in Eastern and Western Europe. And most recently I was in uh, Istanbul and Singapore over the summer teaching, and uh, in China visiting my little brother over uh, December.
3: So does travel, does writing from travel, good writing from travel imply more outward looking or some kind of balance of outward and inward? I'm curious about this idea of Um, the inwardness of the American gaze.
7: You know, it's not about the poem you get out of the experience or, you know, being in a place, but it's the experience of traveling does something which can't be described in a certain way. You know, it's about seeing the world you know, with new eyes, which is is kind of a cliche thing to say, but like you know, I honestly think that like, I would see the world very differently if I'd never Mm -hmm. left this country or left the state where I live or left the city where I grew up, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that something about travel has expanded know, from me personally, how I see the world, and, like, I think it enters my poems in ways I'm not even conscious of sometimes.
6: Yeah, absolutely, and and building on both of it, you know, this idea of the sort of inner and out, outer gaze, it's also just, you know, when you're writing a travel poem, hopefully you're engaging the idea of, of self and world, whereas sort of the narcissistic poem is the opposite of that. It's looking for a world within the confines of the self, mm-hmm. which, and mm-hmm. there are beautiful poems that do that, but but they are different um, processes.
0: And And with that also, I think, like, this couples a lot with what both of you. Were, you were saying that idea that as you travel, you just become a better perceiver and observer. You know, like you just—it's not like oh, we went to you know Cabo San Luca and I got food poisoning, but man, the snorkeling was great. Like I think the more you travel, the more you just, you get past kind of these first and second and third levels of observation.
3: Right now is to hear some actual poems. John, can you read one of yours from Bangladesh?
0: Windows Update. The Indian bowler stares out past the stadium wall where men dance wildly, shaking out the green and crescent flag. Rubs his arm, wonders at the angle of release, why the ball did not jump in the air off the seam, What this one moment will say about his career, a body leaning down, bowing as the ball races out. We two are dancing in the small cement room around the computer and bed covered in netting, through the small hallway where there is no fan, out to the clearing of paddy. At the small store, I buy a bottle of Coke to toast the victory. Iqbal's friend leans toward me, smiling, and repeats his question. Planes overhead continue their sharp climb, dim as torchlights, turning north to Kathmandu maybe, or Europe. Across the field, someone cooking rice turns up a kerosene lamp yellowing the bamboo reed thatched on his roof, where mosquitoes retreat, waiting out the new smoke. No, I don't believe in God. And thinking he did not understand, I repeat it, a long time now, I don't believe in God. He stands up, stretches his arms back behind his chest, says something quickly in Bangla. Then he asks if I know that the Bible is Windows 95 and the Quran is Windows 2000. It has so thoroughly updated and replaced its predecessor, it has fixed the errors It does not crash as often, it sells everywhere. With a flourish, it is the latest and most advanced operating system. Meaning, how can I, American, harbinger of modernization, teacher and translator of English, deny such progress? I, who brought the video disc from the store in Dhaka because it was not available here. But Iqbal tells him sharply to be quiet and no one says anything more. As we head inside for tea, I map out my strategy to never see any of them again. Iqbal's mother smiles as she pours our cups, and I take several biscuits, soaking each until it liquefies, grainy and sweet. When I leave, Iqbal apologizes, and then his friend must, too. But all I can think is how in America it is snowing, and when I step on the plane in three weeks, this world will fall away like rubber chalks, how the tires will burn at takeoff, how temporary everything feels, how self-congratulatory, walking through town toward my campus gate as the frustration swells its bell-tone resonance and even the night buses, packed to the brim and running express, stand idle.
6: And this poem is Passing Beak El slough. It was written while I was living in the Netherlands on some egregiously long commutes. Passing Beak El Slu. Just tell the self to hold still. The discarded bottle crashes to the back. The driver lunges through a traffic circle. Why break? Why breathe? Even the windmills, dull titans pump in the night. They once drained this country, draining a land into itself. Water sucked back to reveal soil dark as a wasp's head. Though on this bus ride home, this epic bus ride home, only the moon feels bounded and lush. It gawks through the window like an astonished eye or an eye, pearled over and blind, searching for the one shape it would recognize in the shadowed landscape. I forgot to tell you this place feels nothing like home, that I wanted to be brave and alone in the world, in the old world with the bones of saints encased like a Baptist's dried flowers, with language wrecked in my mouth, with an idea of what I might come back to, with where I'd never return, humming always inside. Now, suddenly, the only place.
7: So this is a poem that she doesn't have a specific place, but sort of just comes out of the experience of having traveled. Mm. Um, I was listening to the radio and I heard a, a word correspondent talk about having two passports you know for when you cross between conflict zones you can't have the passport with a stamp of one place you need to show them a fresh passport so this idea of having sort of kind of a divided self sort of echoes in this this idea of having two passports and so that's the sort of the inspiration inspiration of the poem. Two passports, one for crooked guards and borderless deserts, silver teeth and unlaced boots, one for crumbling Victorian train stations, white-glove airports, salt-soaked ports. One for pimply desk clerks recommending beds. One for hostage sleeplessness. One to get you out of trouble. The other finds it like a child's fingers. One for the purple tattoo of permission. One for the black signature of apology. One a borrowed soldier song, bullet dodge me. One a stolen soldier song, prayer keep me. One for countries you can't unremember, and the ones you can't unlove. One means you have a home elsewhere.
0: You know what I really like about that poem is—is is I, I, I listen to that poem, and I've heard it before, right? And I think that I think that does it really does it matter where you travel? But it's like I, I, rhetorically, it's interesting to me. Like, does it really matter where you travel? Uh, because my impulse is that the more I write travel poetry i'm writing broader and broader like observations mm-hmm. and and there's something very specific for that about say like a war zone, right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but there's also just something about the idea of of, of, of being two people when you travel of mm-hmm. of crossing borders of, of being one person when you' arrived and one person when you left, and all these like great ideas about travel and it's completely non specific to place kind of
3: just a final question before we all take off um, where would be the next place that you would? want to go as writers, travelers, citizens of the world?
0: Uh, it's, it's an interesting question, Liz. I, I feel like for me, I almost, feel done, I almost feel done with travel at this point. I mean, I almost feel as if, as if I've reached sort of the, I don't know, the event horizon of, of going to other places. And now I'm sort of interested to travel to a place that is more sort of informative of who I was before I was writing. Um, Disney World, no. But, but no. But, yeah, I, I, I mean, having been raised in in you know in the Midwest, I think it would really be interesting to travel to the town where I was born and to sort of poke around and see if all of the poetic skills and strengths I've developed over the years allow me to understand anything better about about say myself or my situation. And it is kind of inward looking, right? It's that thing we were talking about earlier, except now I'm sort of embracing the <laughs> inwardness of. <laughs> of inward tunnel vision of American poetry. What about
3: you, Josh? Uh,
0: you
7: know, I I don't think I'm quite ready to hang up my passport yet. I think that I've got some traveling still to do. Um, I don't know. I really would love to go to, you know, India. I would love to go back to Eastern Europe. Um, I'd love to go back to South America. And I think that there's something it's about going to a place you've already been once. I, I don't feel the need to see so many sites anymore. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I could, go to, I could go to certain places and not see, like, the main attraction and sort of be okay with that. In some ways, there are lots of places I love to go, but I also feel like I could go almost anywhere um, and be happy, like just to be there.
6: I think I share these two opinions. Like opinion. I, <laughs> They're know, different, Laura. You can't share them both. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was when I left when I left Europe. I was tired of being a tourist. I was t- tired of standing on the outside and sort of viewing a culture, you know. But um, and I do have a lot of interest in traveling within the states. I mean. Um, you know, the Grand Canyon sounds, you know, more amazing to me right now than the Taj Mahal, you know, but at the same time, like, there are places that, uh, <laughs> sorry, I have I'll just go on
0: the record as saying that the Taj Mahal is always going to be a Grand Canyon, <laughs> like, three to one.
6: Anyway, uh, I have seen either, so I can't say, but there's also, um, I feel like the, the, When I travel again, I'm really interested in traveling not so much as a tourist, but going to to work or traveling with someone who knows a place to navigate the culture with with, with, with someone who is familiar with it um, and to meet the people there in a very uh, domestic, everyday situation instead of always being kind of skirting the periphery of everything.
0: Can I totally, like, piggyback onto that? Yeah. It's just so funny. I feel like listening to you say that, I go, like, yeah, I would love to do that too. And then I, I realize, like, I'm just exhausted by the idea of, like, taking the plunge into it into a culture again
4: yeah. I don't and
0: I, it's probably you know autobiographical more than situational but it's like I just feel like you know I think about like wow that'd be really right. fun to do but I don't want to go through that period of time between like month 9 and 13 <laughs> where you just admit it was a total failure and you're never gonna learn the language and you're just sick of eating like rice you know or, or like you know fava beans or whatever it is in the culture you live in. it's just like but, it, but it's funny I think like
7: I, I don't know I think I, yeah. yeah, I think I, th- I think John, you just have a better memory than us, though. Like, I mean, like, because I think <laughs> there's there's a short story by a friend that I really like, and there's a line in about you know he's he's in his 20s and like it was the best time of his life, and he couldn't wait for it to end. Mm. And like, you know, in some ways, like when I was living in South America, that's kind of how I felt. Like, I felt like this is the best time, and I couldn't wait for it to be over. Mm. There's something about like forgetting that, yeah. like when you go to a new mm-hmm. place and like be willing to sort of you know be be the outsider and be the one who doesn't speak the language that. I don't know, I, like, I still find exciting, and, you know, I think I just have a short-term memory. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, yeah, I and, like, once,
3: and once I'm it's over, you can write about it. Thanks, everyone, for coming in and talking about travel.
7: Thank you, Liz, yeah. for having us.
1: Oxford, UK, October 13th, 2008. I'll start at the beginning. Rome was just a big tangle of pizza, tourists, and oblique streets. There wasn't a single perpendicular intersection in the whole city as far as I could discern, and we were very green as the whole European travel bit goes, so we spent most of our time in museums, overawed by the oldness of it all. We went to the Vatican Museum, which was just as painful as it was pleasurable. In Venice, I was fortunate enough to see some of the wonders of the New World. I saw tourists taking pictures of tourists taking pictures. I saw a single handbag behind a double pane of bulletproof glass being monitored by 18 silver-plated surveillance cameras. Believe me when I tell you that these wonders do exist, our civilization has elevated us to these new and noble heights.
3: The poets we talk to see travel as a way of recalibrating your sense of self and world of looking inward and outward, even of allowing yourself to feel utterly foreign and displaced, and then try to enjoy it. What if it's your job to explain and investigate places? I talked to an ecologist who works in one of the most touristy places in the Pacific, Hawaii.
8: I'm Peter vatusik I'm a professor of biology. I've been here at Stanford for 25 years, and um, during, I'm an ecologist and I I work in tropical systems particularly and I've worked you know all, well in in a lot of the American tropics in Costa Rica and Brazil, Mexico, Panama a bit, but um, I was born and grew up in Hawaii and for the last, well increasingly since I came to Stanford really I've been doing more and more of my research in Hawaii and I um, work there because it's the most beautiful set of systems for understanding fundamental things about how the world works.
3: You'd think that someone who grew up near Honolulu and who spends his life getting to the bottom of complex environmental systems would be critical of tourism, but that's not the case. You bring students every year to Hawaii
8: to I I bring one or two research students every year, well, graduate students um, every year, and typically one or two undergraduates who are there for summer projects or honors projects each year. And then uh, last year, I brought a, a group of 16 freshmen on a, a week-long field trip to Hawaii, where we spent time on the Big Island and, and on Kauai.
3: Your students would have considered themselves tourists?
8: I don't think so, um, because they were seeing such a broad range of things. My, my daughter, who is 13, worries about that very much. It's interesting. She's you know, upset when she sees tourists doing typical tourist things in Hawaii, and she's upset if we're somewhere else, and she catches herself being a typical tourist doing tourist things. And um, I understand that because there are lots of typical tourist things that are um, more about the person traveling and less about the place, and and that's um, unfortunate. But really, increasingly, it, it, it bothers me less all the time to think in those terms because we're all tourists. You know?
3: It's hard to think of tacky t-shirts, busloads of visitors and cheap souvenirs without cringing but Peter who works with native Hawaiians and New Zealand Maori has seen examples of tourism reinforcing cultural pride. He turns the image on its head.
8: What really crystallized it for, for me was here at Stanford you know, we get all these tour buses pulling up, and people pouring out and coming into the quad and taking pictures like crazy. Yeah. And I, I realized that that was something that bothered me when I was growing up in in Hawaii, and people pouring out at the palace and taking pictures, and they had no idea, you know, who Kamehameha, whose statue uh, was in front of the courthouse, was, and what it meant that he had garlands of leis on his outstretched arm, or a- any of those things. Um, but, you know, I don't think people pouring out of the buses here have any more sense of what uh, Jane Stanford thought about the church when she built it or what the Quad meant. And and, and yet, I think there's a, a sense, and, you know, sound arrogant, but it, I think it's it's accurate, that um, one thing that, that the U.S. does well is universities. I mean, we, but this is something we feel good about, and so... Why should we be uncomfortable if other people come and see it and appreciate it? And if it's, uh, you know, superficial, um, taking pictures of the structure, which aren't, isn't the institution, well, what the hell? I mean, two things visiting global change scientists want to do most. See the active volcano. Everybody wants to see an active okay You got to do that, right? And the second thing is to go up to 11,000 feet on Mauna Loa, where nobody ever goes. No locals go there, or very few, and get their picture taken in front of that observatory, where that record is coming from. Because you know that record is so important in our understanding of the Earth, and yeah. there professional careers are tied up in that, and they think of themselves teaching a class and showing the curve from Mauna Loa, and then a picture of themselves in front of it. That's shallow as hell, but what the hell, you know? I think it's, uh, it's paying respect.
3: And the thing is, as Peter explains it, tourism and travel is not a one-way street
8: involved in a program at Stanford and the Woods Institute and the Native American Cultural Center here. And bring five Hawaiians and five Maori here every year for a two-week institute, and then they spend a month on a project in New Zealand and a month on a project in Hawaii. And and no one is unchanged by it. And, you know, it's it's remarkable when the group comes here. Um, you know, the the idea of it is to come, be in a Western institution, and pull together information on business, leadership, communication, science, resource management, but, but it's our new understanding exactly. too in that exactly. in that sense the facilitators yeah. are are equally altered by the interaction is you know, it, it should be that way yeah. but too often it's not that way in practice. A do you
4: think that
3: do you think that as um, a scientist
8: um, when you travel
3: to places,
8: not for work mm-hmm. but for pleasure you travel differently? Yes, sure how? let me rephrase that I guess as a natural historian I travel differently yeah. I don't know that I travel differently as a scientist but as someone who's used to work, looking at land and trying to think about it and, and how it works I think I travel differently from someone who isn't a natural historian, and so doesn't um, make some of the same connection.
3: Just back to this idea of travel versus tourism, which is a fading, mm-hmm. fading significance of fading significance. Do you think the, that that uh, willingness, or maybe an eagerness, to seek out those complicated relationships, is um, something more of a traveler's shtick than a tourist?
8: Sure. Sure, it's, it's not it's not a dimension I think of, yeah. think along, but I I understand it and it it makes sense. Um, you know, we do a lot of travel as mm-hmm. as you do on those natural history trips, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly it's interesting to see how differently people approach them. Some of them really trying to find the story of that land as much as they can uh, from what they read, who they talk to, what they see, and other people being perfectly content to drink margaritas on the beach, you know? As long as it's a nice beach. I'm all for the margaritas on the beach, but that's the end of the day, after I've hiked up into the mountains and come back down. On a really good day, caught a couple waves too, and then the margaritas on the beach are great, you know? Yes, they are.
3: being ready to look. Being finished for a while looking inward and being ready to
8: accept. Yeah, I think, and some people are ready young and Uh some people are never ready in their whole lives. The thing that I was thinking about was, I take a lot of graduate students to Hawaii to do work and, and you go out in the field with them, and you know everybody has an image of what Hawaii is going to be like, and where we go and what we do is really different from everybody's image of what Hawaii is going to be. And um, boy, you you see some people after the first day, even or certainly after the first week, they just they see it. You know? huh. They 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 feel where they are, and they start asking questions that derived not just from the reading they did before they came, but what they see in front of them. And it's it's so exciting when you see people just fit and and uh, connect. And, and uh, other people never do. You have to build on the world's questions, but you have to also be aware of the place's answers. And it has to apply, too, in terms of being aware of the culture's answers as well. As having a sense of the world's questions. And I guess that's a, a thing where I see travel and connection being really important. You know, If you live in a place, you can know it really well. And the place has answers. But you don't know the questions, so you can't get the answers. Yeah. And uh, coming into it, often you have the questions. Mm-hmm. But you don't know how to connect to the place well enough to get the answers. And being able to put that together is... Um, really crucial.
3: What's your hope for, you, for travel when you set out on a trip?
8: Oh, to, to, to learn, to be changed by it, you know, to, um, to learn about a place, but also to um, learn about land um, and have a sense that I can, of land in one place that I can then take to other places.
9: October 28th, 2006, outside of Arusha in Tanzania, and I'm torn because I want to give, but hate that it's expected of me, and was the minute I walked into the room because of my skin. The group then asked us for a sponsor in the U.S., and Chloe just said, It's harder than it seems, but we'll look into it. And the group secretary asked for our phone numbers, and the woman we visit usually, who sell secondhand shoes, kind of jokingly tried to sell us some. Sometimes I wish I'd never come and want to fly back home as soon as I can, because sometimes working here is so hard that I don't know what to do. And if I were a Tanzanian in that support group and I saw two white people sitting in the front of the room when I walked in, I know what I would be thinking. And it's not too far off, right? Why not, right? But somehow I hate that the person-to-person connection, the emotional support and mutual inspiration gets missed a lot of the time.
3: Travel and being a tourist can mean being uncomfortable and alienated. But when combined with open curiosity, travel can help us learn to see things, even familiar things, differently. Samantha Way travels from Malaysia to California and discovers how foreign even her daily life can be.
2: When it's freshly hosed down, the dirt ground of the Pasar Pagi is evenly covered by a thin pool of water and blood. Livestock remains collect in the drains beneath the open-air market. Vendors have tables set up with brightly colored tarps covering their products. People push in and out of the market and haggle for prices, catch up on conversation, or simply do their grocery shopping. These centers of commerce sporadically appear in the city of Kuala Lumpur. The most familiar and popular, the market at Jalan Imbi, Jalan being the Malay phrase for road, is always packed with Chinese Malays. These primitive markets are a great contrast to the growing city high-rises. They reflect what is left of rural living. This remnant of old-town Chinese Malay culture is known as the Pasar Pagi. Last time I walked through the Pasar Pagi, I remember how the flavorful aroma of De tarik or traditional beverage made of tea and condensed milk common in Malaysia, Singapore, and Brunei, fused with the rotten egg stench of the durian fruit. The oil from the deep-fried yutiao, or morning pastry, seeped into the pores of the market vendor as he prepared an assortment of juk dishes, or rice porridge, for the local Chinese Malays. It was crowded, unorganized, and vibrant. Every time I visit Malaysia to see my extended family, my grandma takes me to the Pasar Pagi to enjoy the dynamic nature of the morning market. The market is chaotic and colorful, radiating deep greens of the freshest gailan, or Chinese broccoli, purples and reds of the mangosteen and rambutan fruits, and tender pinks of the freshly butchered meat. As the morning wears on, the Pasar Pagi becomes ever more noisy and transforms into a social event, Families gather for early morning shopping, friends reunite over a bowl of jok, and vendors carry on continual conversations with their routine customers. The Pasar Pagi is not for the faint of heart, nor is it for the unaccustomed visitor. It is not that the Pasar Pagi is omitted from the Lonely Planet website. In fact, it is listed on Malaysia's travel page as a frenetic place full of squawking chickens, selling everything from goldfish and bowls to pig heads, cows' tongues, and durians in baskets. Tourists are even recommended to arrive early in the morning to experience the market at its most lively and pungent state. But for as many times as I have been to the Pasar Pagi, or wet market, I don't remember seeing any tourists. Although it sort of is a second home, I don't feel like I entirely belong. What appears most obvious to me when I visit Malaysia is the contrast between the Malay-Chinese lifestyle and the suburban American lifestyle in which I was raised. When I walk through the aisles and stalls of the Pasar Pagi, I don't see it for itself. I always have another market in mind, namely, the Safeway supermarket. When I'm home in Newport Beach, California, I cannot find any similarities to the primitive market of Jalan Imbi. Though the giant supermarket chains have the same function as the Pasar Pagi, selling food, they're worlds apart in atmosphere. Unlike the open-air market of the Pasar Pagi, we have abnormally white floors and bright fluorescence overhead. Everything is neatly packaged, marketed, and shelved in its proper location, like the way books are sorted by the Dewey Decimal System in libraries. There are no aromas, everything is stagnant. But when I compare my experience of visiting the exotic Pasar Pagi to the more familiar Safeway, suddenly the ordinary transforms into the extraordinary. What's normal becomes strange. In fact, when I have the Pasar Pagi in mind, the supermarket transforms from its stereotypical status as a community center and place of business. This phenomena is something I call backyard tourism. As I reflect on my Pasar Pagi experiences, I realize that I viewed it solely in relation to Safeway. However, I had never looked at Safeway through the lens of the Pasar Pagi. By looking at the familiar places in our lives, like the supermarket, in the way we could look at the exotic ones, like the Pasar Pagi, we can have entirely new perspectives. Through backyard tourism, we can achieve self-discoveries that are perhaps even more enlightening than the insight that comes from going abroad and experiencing a different culture. What happens when we view a common institution through the lens of having experienced its cultural equivalent elsewhere? something radical starts to appear. Before we can see Safeway through the eyes of a tourist, we have to be tourists ourselves. Let's return to the Pasar Pagi. My first vivid memory of the market springs from when I was about five years old, and I remember thinking that it was gross and smelled awful. As the years went on, I began to grasp the richness of the Chinese Malay culture, while internally feeling disgust towards the insanitation of the place. Tourists go abroad and judge the foreign culture, embracing its redeeming qualities while pushing away the qualities that they find repulsive. In one way, the tourist, or outsider, partaking in the market activities, is mainly at the Pasar Pagi for educational enlightenment. The Pasar Pagi is a culturally educational experience, setting outsiders with its aromas, visual colorization, and dynamic nature. Additionally, the Pasar Pagi is a novelty to the westerner. Such a primitive shopping and social experience is like nothing else found in the Western world. The exploration of the Pasar Pagi is a brand new experience. Tourists seek out the absurd, or foreign when touring, and also the seemingly authentic. They look for the phenomenal experience in being repulsively shocked by the crudeness of the Pasar Pagi, or being delightfully amazed by its colorful social environment. But classifying the Pasar Pagi as a tourist site is not that simple. Why is it that I don't see the Pasar Pagi flooded with the flash photography of Western tourists? Tourist sites seem to have two fundamental parts. The first is what is obvious and exposed to the tourist, and the second is the behind-the-scenes production for the first. For example, in Hawaiian luau, many tourists have the opportunity of experiencing the hula dance and the feast traditions, but they do not see the contrived efforts that occur behind the scenes the luau companies make a concerted effort to appeal to the tourist desires for the real hawaiian experience however the term real becomes somewhat ironic as the luau is more of a theatrical production than an authentic exposition of hawaiian culture the companies are trying to make the experience seem like an authentic slice of hawaiian life even though it's completely staged <laughs> Unlike the luau, the Pasar Pagi is not sterilized to appeal to tourists, but rather remains primitive and pristine. Locals do not try to concoct an experience that caters to the expectations and desires of tourists. It does not sterilize itself nor modernize itself for the convenience of the tourist. It remains untouched by the commercialization imposed by the tourism industry. And in this way, the Pasar Pagi is authentically able to preserve Malaysian culture without outside influence. Animal remains in all. At this point, I began to wonder what happens when I look at the Pasar Pagis correlative, the American supermarket. Shopping at the local grocery store is not a thrilling experience, nor is it an activity in which we aim to judge the place of exploration. Yet there is something about the experience that resembles the tourist experience. In fact, if we look closely, Safeway kind of resembles Disneyland. Disneyland has all these secret backrooms, where the characters take off their masks, where the electricians fix rides, and the security guards monitor the park. But we don't see any of it. The Disneyland tourist is shielded from the workings of the park, so we can have an authentic experience of the staged magic of the place. The supermarket is kind of the same way. The bright lights, the colorful displays. At the supermarket, like Disneyland we also don't see what goes on behind the scenes. In the back regions of the supermarket, there are the meat processor or butchery areas, both of which are hidden from the customer. Because the American supermarket is not often seen as a tourist novelty, people take for granted its normalcy. Rarely do we think twice about the supermarket experience. There is nothing extraordinary about it when viewed through our typical everyday lens. In fact, there is an acceptance of what the supermarket should be rather than what it actually is. People think of it as a center of community and simply a place where you can buy food. We would like to think of the supermarket as this community center that brings people together, but the supermarket has evolved in such a way that actually keeps us apart. Each type of supermarket, everything ranging from natural markets like Whole Foods to farmers markets to wholesale markets like Costco, targets a particular audience and shapes its own set of customers, dividing one type from the next. I have found that when you begin to look at the supermarket carefully, all these ideals of what the supermarket should be and how it functions in society become questionable. In comparison to the Pasar Pagi, I noticed that the experience of the American supermarket is inherently antisocial. The American supermarket is relatively quiet and stagnant in relation to the hustle and bustle of the Pasar Pagi. Upon entering a Safeway chain, all one hears is the humming of the background radio that is occasionally interrupted by a storewide announcement. There is a sense of isolation and sterilization. The grocery shopping experience at Safeway is very much a solitary pursuit. Customers are trying to be as efficient as possible, checking off items on their list as they place each one into their grocery cart. The sheer warehouse size of the American supermarket makes interpersonal relationships difficult within the market itself. Unlike the Pasar Pagi, where the market experience is more about social ties than about consumerism, the American supermarket breeds interpersonal isolation in a sort of competitive manner. Customers speed around, scrounging for the best buy-one-get-one-free deals and scoping out the checkout lines to assure a spot in the quickest one. Once you start to really look at it from this different angle, the American supermarket becomes pretty absurd, weird, and foreign. When we become backyard tourists, the unspoken acceptance of our everyday institutions, like the American supermarket, is turned upside down. Because backyard tourism allows us to dissect everyday institutions in such detail, it exposes some problems and hang-ups of Western culture, particularly the paranoia, psychological fears, and technological dependence. For example, the meat section of the supermarket highlights many of our psychological fears. Meat at Safeway doesn't look like meat at the Pasar Pagi. Sometimes, it doesn't even look like meat. The cubed meat wrapped in air-sealed plastic allows the supermarket to distance the consumer from the actual product or the animal. The customer no longer sees the chicken breast as once being a part of the swocking chicken, like in the Pasar Pagi, but simply as a pink, tender blob ready for buying. (laughs) Backyard tourism is a powerful tool. It forces us to alter our views on social convention and to question our own habits. Backyard tourism is a matter of really looking and being open to the idea that tourism is not simply a black-and-white form of judgment. It's much more than that. Analyzing our experience of pushing carts, checking off lists, and buying vacuum-sealed cartons of food may, in fact, be a powerful tool for self-understanding. As I look carefully at the example of the Pasar Pagi in the American supermarket, I notice this odd dynamic elsewhere. Watching Stanford tour guides walk the campus, I realize we are the specimens of tourism, too. Without these tourist snapping photos, we wouldn't realize these details of our own weird culture. It is the durian fruit, the joke dishes, and the lan that allow me to re-envision the craft singles, canned corn, and microwavable chicken nuggets.
3: Samantha Way is a sophomore from Newport Beach, California. Her essay on the Passer Pagi was originally written for The Ugly American, a power class taught by Scott Herndon.
10: Paris, France, December 16, 2008. I have very mixed feelings about going home. In my time here, I've learned so much about myself and my country and France. One of the most amazing parts about being here was the feeling of constantly being in history. Things that we spend years learning about in school, like the French Revolution, or the Louvre, or the Eiffel Tower. I see these things every day. And I have a feeling of belonging somewhere, a feeling of purpose, a direction to head once I go back, that I didn't feel before, because I had never had to live without the privilege and progressive spirit of the U.S., California, and Stanford. And knowing that is what waits for me when I return in a few days. Bringing with me the new knowledge I have gained from my time in France is what I'm most thankful for. My experiences here have been amazing, and I wouldn't trade them for anything. But what I'm most excited about, and most grateful for, is that I can take what I've learned home with me, and use my new perspective to influence the world around me in a way that always existed, but that I never quite saw until now.
3: So we've learned that traveling to foreign places can change the way we view the world, but can it actually change our behavior? And what would it take, a month or year living abroad, to be deeply affected by travel more? To find out, I talked to a researcher who wants to know how to get people to care about place, even if they're only just passing through.
11: So ecoregion conservation is conservation at a larger scale, so as opposed to save the panda, it's save the southwest temperate forest of China. (laughs) So it's this idea that if you protect the larger habitat, you then protect all the, the ecosystemic services and the, the, you know, the, the plant and animal species and the biogeochemical flows that are occurring within this larger piece of land. And it's, it's a very ecologically based concept.
3: This is Nicole Ardoine.
11: and I'm an assistant professor here at Stanford. Um, I am in a new position. I do environmental education. So I'm in a joint position with the Woods Institute for the Environment and the School of Education. And my question was, where do people fit into this picture? Which led to the interest in sense of place. Do people have a sense of place, a connection to place, an emotional as well as a cognitive attachment to place um, at, at the scale of an ecoregion?
3: Or for the purposes of this show, how do tourists visiting beautiful ecological places fit in?
11: It's it's a very interesting um, concept.
3: In- Nicole has traveled widely and has spent her life working toward ecological conservation. She has worked at the Grand Canyon as a naturalist and traveled to Hudson Bay with the World Wildlife Foundation. Nicole studies how people develop a sense of place. Her studies have focused on the Galapagos, where she has worked as a naturalist, the Klamath-Siskiyou region of Oregon and California, and the Chesapeake Bay area. For her, the big question behind all this is, so what? If people care about a place or see it as part of an eco-region, are they more or less likely to be good stewards of it? The answer is complicated. It's almost a question. It seems like you're asking, how do you develop a res- sense of responsibility, and to what? Yes. To what do you develop a sense yes. of responsibility?
11: Yes, absolutely, and, that's, and actually, in the, you know, that big question is a lot of also what, what motivated my research in the first place, which is, again, if you go back to these kind of more traditional writings about place, um, you'll see a lot of writing around this idea that it's, that it's about being rooted in one place, that it's about having a long ancestral history, that it's about staying in one place, mm-hmm. that it's about knowing the local cycles, and yet when you go to some place like WWF, where I worked, You have all these people who've dedicated their lives to protecting the environment, making very little money, working incredibly long hours, many of them at the expense of any sort of life outside of work. And yet, these are often people who aren't connected to one particular place. And so the, the literature would have predicted that those people would be kind of these placeless people who weren't really committed or dedicated to anything. And in reality, it's precisely the opposite. A very rooted connection to place, where in some ways you some people are stuck, so some people don't have the opportunity to go elsewhere, and therefore they might develop a really positive rooted sense of place, or they might also have a negative connotation of their place because they're stuck. <laughs> then you look at people who, are, who have the opportunity to travel, or who have the opportunity to choose their place, and in some ways that produces a more positive place connection, because they specifically said Galapagos is a really special place. I'm want I I'm going to save my pennies and spend my scarce vacation time to go to the, see this place that's very mythical, that's, um, that's part of our global natural heritage. That if we all are willing to accept a place like Galapagos or like the Great Rift Valley as, as the natural heritage that belongs to all of us, then it is the responsibility of all of us to do something to protect these places. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that might be donating money, or whether that might be supporting organizations that work there, or whether that might be, you know, in the case of climate change, doing our part at home, um, there are some really interesting questions to be asked around how traveling to these very special places then can motivate people to change behaviors at home. And I think in a lot of ways, um, perhaps going to a place like Galapagos leaves people feeling hopeful, um, which is interesting because I think working there often can leave you feeling hopeless. And I think it's it's in the hopefulness that comes from visitors to places like that, that those of us who work in places like that find inspiration. Um, I, I think it's really interesting to see travelers who come and who bring this experience of elsewhere um, and look at it, look at it, this, look at this magnificent place with fresh eyes uh, to then really feel re-inspired to think this is, this is why we're working so hard to protect this place.
3: This leads me to ask, can you tell who you've affected as an educator? Can you tell what happens to a visitor to a place? Nicole recalls a stereotypical tourist moment at the Grand Canyon where the average visitor spends less than one hour.
11: Actually, one of my favorite Grand Canyon um, portrayals is in Chevy Chase. Do you remember that? In Vacation. And they travel all the way across the country. Well, they're not going to Grand Canyon. They're going to Wally World. Right. But they get to the Grand Canyon, and they hop out of the car, and Chase says, OK, kids, here it is. And they take a picture, and then they okay. hop back in the car and go. You bet. And that's, I mean, I think when I was at the Grand Canyon, the average visit to the Grand Canyon was less than an
3: hour. Really? Yes. But Nicole points out that an authentic sense of place can occur in unexpected ways. And maybe length of visit does not measure impact. She shares a story about traveling to Kenya.
11: I had a really interesting experience. I went to, I, I had the tremendous opportunity when I was in graduate school at Yale. Um, Wangari Maathai, who later won the Nobel Peace Prize, was a visiting professor one of the semesters that I was there. And she took a group of 10 of us to Kenya for a month. Mm-hmm. And um, this was long, you know, seven or eight years before her prize. Um, but we were, we were spending time in different parts of Kenya. And then one of the things that we did, we were driving out to the countryside and on our way as we were driving out to the countryside, um, the van we were in pulled over for us to take, I don't know, a quick snack and get out of the van for just a minute. And we just happened to pull over right next to this unbelievable view of the Great Rift Valley. We just, we had just come over this pass and we suddenly looked down to the back and I had such an overwhelming feeling of Mm. awe and um history and yeah, I mean I still I still feel teary when I talk about it. It's amazing because it was really it was so short. We were there for maybe ten minutes. Yeah. Just as we pulled over and I think the guy was checking the oil in the car. I mean it was something very mundane. But it was such an incredible it was I think it was because it was our first glimpse of the valley and just this really mythical idea of like, you know, this is where civilization began. I mean this is where this is where people, you know, were, were, you know, I don't, I'm not good with science, millions and millions and millions of years ago. I mean, it's really pretty incredible to think that this is where, where it all started. And so that, that was a really interesting experience for me because it was, it was one of the few times that I remember my first time of experiencing a place like that, and I, and it made a huge impact on me. And so when I start to feel skeptical about people coming to the Grand Canyon for an hour, or I start to feel skeptical about people coming to Galapagos for three days, I try to remember that everybody experiences it differently, and that there's different, again, you know, different context. You know, versus as someone else who might not have known what what little I knew about the Great Rift Valley might have had a very different experience. I mean, I've just thought, well, this is a there's a valley. <laughs>
7: Santiago Chile, December tenth, two thousand seven. At the Manuel Mont Metro this morning, I looked into the mirrored wall of the station and accidentally made eye contact with the reflection of a middle aged woman in the subway car next to mine. She smiled, tapped her friend on the shoulder, and they both waved. I waved back and we all giggled, thinking how silly it is that we can only connect with the people in the opposite metro car, and even then, only through their mirrored reflection. So busy moving around the planet at high speeds, we forget to look around and see who's
4: right near us.
3: Why do we travel? To be changed. I have to confess, I spend a lot of time worrying about whether travel is selfish. Whether it's another way for us, as Americans, to go and observe and return with stories and cool photos that don't necessarily say anything more than, Hey, I'm interesting, look at where I went. Like Elizabeth Bishop asks, Is it right to be watching strangers play in the strangest of theaters? But we're not just watching when we travel. We're playing too. We're participating in the world. In listening to the stories we heard, I think it could be true that even the briefest moments when we open ourselves to the world can be long-lasting and profound. Whether it's unexpectedly coming upon a valley you've only read of, entering into the bright chaos of a market, or playing ball in Bangladesh. Travel changes lives. Maybe travel isn't selfish, but a wonderful, adventurous way to reach towards selflessness, towards seeing the many ways our lives connect to the larger world. Maybe we all should leave home more often, even if it's just for a neighborhood stroll. Who knows?
6: Je vais à la mer, il fait beau, il fait beau.
3: Today's program was produced by Dan Hirsch and myself with Jonah Willingance and Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Peter Vitusik, John Evans, Joshua Rivkin, Laura McKee, Samantha Way, Nicole Ardoin for their contributions. We'd like to thank Bob Smith, Mark Lawrence, and Kobe Van Tonder for their technical support. We'd also like to thank all those who generously shared their travel letters and who have this to say.
1: Xin Michelle.
3: From Down Under. Bonnie Swift.
1: C'est la vie.
10: Cheers.
5: Miss home a little too much
9: these days. Selena.
10: A See you later. Daniel McDougal.
1: Que se vaya bien. Besitos. Suerte. Todo mi amor y
2: más. Daniel Hirsch.
3: Original music for the show was written and performed by Johnny Wynn, Natalie Dawn, and Eli Hurwitz, The Reiterators, and Volunteer Pioneer. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity in the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of The Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week for our Valentine's Day show. How widely can we define matchmaking? Come find out. Bon voyage. Ciao. I'm hitting the road. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Elizabeth Bradfield. Don't forget to write. for listening to this week's storytelling project. As a special feature for the podcast of Questions of Travel, we've included three more poems by Stegner Fellows John Evans, Laura McKee, and Joshua Rifkin. Here's John.
0: Um, The town where I lived was a small town north of the capital, and the local political chieftain had a monopoly on the bus traffic, and so he approached me and asked me to tutor his wife in English, and that was a Impossible thing to refuse so I just did it.
3: This is also in Bangladesh. Yes, yeah, is also
0: in Bangladesh. This is called teaching the gangster's wife <clears throat> My language gives status in a village where few speak it My language is something he would like his wife to learn English a Servant returns with milky tea and biscuits their tip is too large My friend you don't mind. I am to you for Kader by wife teaching English on the porch of this giant house We smoke Benson's and talk about the Godfather he, too, killed a policeman, but with a wooden stool. He says all of this in English. In town, five Ngrigi language academies opened during my first year. Even when a dictator outlaws it, someone teaches English. For our first lesson, we translate the names of furniture in her living room. We tape index cards to everything. Red Bangla on one side, the other Black English. After a while in the office, I explain my project to the director. He tells me not to hold class in her home. You can't reason with a bomb in English. One day, the cows that strip our school on and shit everywhere disappear. The superintendent asks if I enjoy teaching English. The morning of my birthday, Babul and I watch the butcher slaughter a large goat. We invite everyone, even the peons, sing happy birthday in English. The old missionary in the forest tells me Cotter is a good killer. We drink rice wine and tell stories but never speak of it again in English. When her father dies, the body is displayed for two nights. Thousands pay respect. Seated with the family, I wonder if it is disrespectful to pray in English. For my effort all over town, I become known as Pagol Badeshi, crazy foreigner. When I dream, I dream all the names I've forgotten, even in English.
6: This is a poem, called Dear Robert, an unwritten postcard with the mannequin piss. And the mannequin piss is this little statue off the main square in Brussels, which is kind of like the Eiffel Tower, ironically, of, of Brussels. It's this small, teeny little statue that has been there for centuries and there's all these legends that surround it and you go and all the tourists sort of run there and it's you know it's a statue that's probably like 18 inches high. It's really kind of underwhelming in every way and um, this is <laughs> I think both of the poems that I brought today were poems that I wrote out of a sense of feeling really displaced and in some ways homesick and um, they were both written at the end of the two-year stay abroad um, and it, the poem is is somewhat of an elegy. Um, I had a professor who was who was sick, and I knew that he was probably not going to make it. And I bought this postcard of the mannequin piss, and I know he knew he'd been there before. And I thought it was sort of this funny little note that I would send, mm-hmm. and I never did. And so then he passed away, and you know I found this postcard. Um, anyway, Yes. Yeah. So it, uh, the name of the poem is "Dear Robert, an unwritten postcard with the mannequin piss." He leans into it, squeezing out the arc of piss, while the mechanical pump of his bladder is silent. And there is only the sound, sublime or embarrassing, of water hitting water. In the corner of his fountain, the faces of the long-traveled reflect disappointedly. You have been here. You have seen it. This statue tucked in the wings of a square, how the cherubic boy grins the baby fat folds of his groin, knowing only one pleasure of release. Or two, if you believe the stories of that dark, vulnerable night when a toddler roaming through unmanned alleys doused the initial fire of a saboteur's fuse, thereby saving a city from burning, thereby locked in his eternal resuscitating gesture. How easy the legends of survival unfold, enemies retreating from a sleeping city, this little stone boy, a promise of how we might outlast ourselves. Our blandest functions, the path to salvation, though it won't last and we know it. Dragging on to dinner, where pots of mussels pile and tremble like liverish moons. How close is the river, we ask for distraction, while the birds off the square hover at every table. Scattering their wings split like cells that might stop a body, that sound like the first rip and burst of air that could burn down houses in one's sleep. And you have seen it. The mind fierce against destruction. Even as cities begin to fail, bodies to disappoint. I'm
7: going to read a poem called In Krakow, which is about when I was uh, just traveling in, in Eastern Europe. In Krakow. A workman unloads a crate of strawberries at the restaurant's door seeds like a fire's white embers, or some undeciphered alphabet. There's a story about a man who tried to rename the world. After time, he began to forget and give things the same names. Oxen and deciduous forest were one, Southern Cross and Jealousy were one, and no one could say what they meant. I'll risk confusion for something true. In the square, I watch afternoon performances, shirtless breakdancers, a boy playing Bach on a concertina, Crowds pulled in by the strong motion of fear. Something is being missed. Above us, sparrows circle and dive. Curved figures in air. Wingspans open then closed like fingers into fists, into prayers. I thought of the deaf couple in the cafe. I couldn't eavesdrop on details of their lives. Only gaze the quick work of hands. How they made each syllable visible. Word as flesh, body as sound. In Krakow, I asked a man for directions to the English bookstore, my palm up and jar to show the spine's necessary break. Words and skin, gesture of pages, until he recognized the shape and pointed to the store down the avenue, past rows of lindens, green and blooming in late summer light.